I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 10th, 2011. I am so tempted to have today's edition be, like, dedicated to one topic. There is... I'm going to tell you right at the beginning here that there's a chance that we will not discuss anything else except for this one topic today and, like, not even do a sermon review. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we have got to do the comparative work and ask the question, is what we're being taught or what you're being taught in your church uh, really what the Bible teaches, or is it something else? Is your Is your pastor rightly handling God's Word, or is he just... Well, teaching something that's really odd or foreign to God's word. I mean, we live in a in a time where people think that they can modify the approach to how Christianity is to make it palpable and uh, appealing to the culture. Well, the culture has gone very mystical and very Gnostic. Uh, mysticism is a key component of uh, the postmodern worldview. And as a result of it, the church, in their in their ever so uh, vigilant striving to be relevant and say to the culture, "Oh, oh, oh, we've got we've we you want mystical experiences? Well, we've got that. We've got that. Look, we can go back to uh, you know medieval Catholicism and and uh, and come up with mystical practices so that you can you can experience the um of Jesus. You know, <laughs> yeah. Anyway." That yeah, we, we got a problem. You, that mysticism is not compatible with biblical Christianity, and we're going to spend some. We're going to spend a lot of time on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, looking at this. Now, uh, if you were listening to uh, last Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I highlighted the fact that the uh, the pastors dot com website. This would be the uh, website 
that features what is called Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox. Uh, last Sunday, on October 2nd, uh, they put out a, a resource called Centering Prayer, Trust Jesus Brings Transformation. And uh, spent some time basically walking through that. And what I want to do today is uh, is walk through the opening part of that and po- and basically show you uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna take a journey, if you would. We're go- we're going to go to a Cistercian monastery. Uh, we're gonna visit some trap a Trappist monk today, and uh, and hear from him uh, regarding centering prayer. Why? Well. Um, if you remember when we talked about this last week, uh, the uh, the article mentions the fact that there were three Cistercian monks who, in the 60s and 70s, who developed this thing called centering prayer. And so, you know, rather than you know going with a cheap knockoff, we thought we'd go right to the source, to the brand itself, and spend some time with you today, basically letting you hear from the monk's mouth uh, what it is that's. Um, Centering prayer is all about, and what the spiritual goal is, and then what I'll be doing uh, to uh, provide the counterpoint. The last word on this is going to go to a gal by the name of uh, of Marcia Montenegro. Marcia Montenegro had spent some time in the New Age, and she wrote an article back in 2005 t- entitled "Contemplating Contemplative Prayer: Is It Really Prayer?" And so I'm going to read her uh, journal article from 2005. Uh, the Midwest Christian, yeah, I forget the the whole. I'll have to look this up and get the whole, the whole name of it. But it's Midwest Christian something uh, journal. Anyway, um, we're, I'm going to be uh, reading her article that she wrote uh, about this and give. Well, basically, she's a Christian apologist uh, who deals with uh, uh, the New Age and uh, and give her the last word, if you would, at least from her expertise on the subject. But. Um, so th- that's what we're going to do today. Now, I, I, at the opening of the program, I said I I it I reserve the right to uh, only have this be the one topic we deal with today, rather than doing a sermon review and having this be a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Reason being is is that um, what I'm trying to do is put together a um, make this as a standalone uh, MP3 file that uh, people can go to. And the reason being is because um, that uh, that article that was posted at Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox as well, it's disappeared apparently. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about that here in a second. So um, this is not going to be a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's not a light edition, but um, you know uh, what I would strongly recommend uh, if you're taking notes on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, which means uh, fuzzy bunny slippers and adult beverages probably would distract from what needs to acom- be accomplished in the work that needs to be done on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. I don't, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I invoked anything of that nature, but this is important. This is super important. So let's dive into the program proper and let's talk about the topic. Yeah. There's our centering prayer music. <clears throat> this is from the New Age Merlin's Magic Chakra Meditation Music, Heart of Reiki. Okay. <laughs> It's driving me nuts. <laughs> I, I'm getting sleepy. Uh, anyway, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it, uh, 
<laughs> I need to pick some better new age music. Okay, so here's the deal. Let let me remind you of what happened last week. Last week at Rick Warren's pastors.com website from the Rick Warren Ministry Toolbox, an article was posted entitled Centering Prayer Trust Jesus Brings Transformation. This was written by a gal who, well, let's just say that there's good reason to suspect that she's a pastrix, a you know, um, and uh, she, so she's the one who actually wrote this. But uh, the Rick Warren Ministry Toolbox Twitter account tweeted out a um, a link to it, uh, and the name of it was "Centering Prayer, Trust G- Jesus." Now I want to read to you not the how-to, but where this gal Stacy Smith. Um, claims this all came from and it, we're going to ask a couple of you know kind of hard hitting questions up front as we then as we then wander into the history of this and let those who let one man who is responsible for developing this speak for himself as to what this thing is all about so uh, Stacy Smith writing at Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox pastors.com writes a healthy spiritual life is an important part of Overall wellness, an active and healthy faith life, means that we are concerned with something larger than ourselves. It also means most often that we are part of a community of people with similar beliefs and priorities to uh, to ours, but we sometimes become bored with our normal spiritual routine. And uh, one way to add something different to our faith life is to try a practice called centering prayer. So if you're bored, I mean, seriously, I mean, uh, let me give you let me give you a metaphor that this would make sense. Are you bored with your spiritual life? Well, have you tried the Ouija board? Yeah, the Ouija board. I mean, that's super exciting stuff. And uh, you you, (laughs) and when it's all said and done, I mean, your life won't be boring, boring anymore. You'll probably have a demon living in your home, wreaking all kind of havoc and just making your life of well, your home, a veritable haunted house, if you would. So so are you bored with your life? Try centering prayer. It's it basically it's akin to uh taking up the Ouija board. You'll find out why here in a minute, but uh, uh you know, the article continues, a centering prayer is an ancient yeah, is an ancient form of prayer that is a combination of prayer and meditation. The practice was revived in the 1960s and 70s by three Cistercian monks. The practice of centering prayer allows for the recognition of thoughts and gently releases them into the hands of God. This is a form of prayer that relies on awareness that the Holy Spirit resides in the one who prays, connecting them heart to heart with God. Boy, is that... (laughs) That's a carefully crafted sentence. Let me just put it this way. Yeah, when you find out this idea that the Holy Spirit resides in the one who prays and what that really means and connecting you heart to heart with God and what that really means, you're going to be basically asking why on earth would Rick Warren's ministry toolbox ever publish an article like this? Now, this is a valid question. And so just so you know, the three Cistercian monks who are credited with reviving the so-called ancient practice, they are Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington, and William Menninger. Yeah, those those so if you know somebody who's really into Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington or William Menninger, yeah, they their chances are that they're dabbling in this stuff and this is the this is the prayer equivalent of the Ouija board. That's again, that's how dangerous this stuff is and you're going to find out exactly why. So what I thought I would do is, you know, let's dig up some resources. Let's uh, let's let one of the three men 
who's responsible for reviving this ancient practice, supposedly a form of prayer and meditation, combo of the two, let him speak for himself. Let him be the one that teaches us this. So here's the deal. Anybody who's read this article at Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox, which, by the way, the article itself has mysteriously disappeared with no explanation, no explanation whatsoever. Now, I'm used to playing this cat and mouse game with uh, the folks there at Saddleback Church and uh, that are associated with Rick Warren. One of the things I've noticed over the years of uh, basically covering the weird things that Rick Warren is up to is that uh, when push comes to shove and uh, it ends up that, uh, that well, yeah, he starts getting bad press or uh, complaints from people regarding ministry resources that have appeared at uh, his his website, pastors.com, or videos that appeared on YouTube or things like that, when when uh, those people who are discernment bloggers, of course, those are people who just, you know, they don't have a life. They live in their mom's basement. Uh, these are people, according to them, who, uh, you know, they are naked uh, on a beanbag eating Cheetos. They, you know, these are just disgruntled, terrible people who never have a valid point. There's no such thing as a valid critic in the world of the purpose-driven movement. But uh, anyway, when when the, when they start shining the light of truth on the things that are being posted uh, in Rick Warren's name or that have his name associated with it, um, if it starts to hurt them in a public relations kind of way, those resources have a bad habit of just whoosh, you know, disappearing. And so over the years, I've learned a technique, and that is is that anything that uh, that is associated with Rick Warren that uh, you know is heretical, that uh, you know that uh, as soon as you sign, shine the light on it, has a chance of disappearing, you make sure you make copies of it. You take screenshots, and <laughs> I did all of that already. So, uh, yeah, it, but see, here's the deal. One of the things I've noticed about uh, you know Rick Warren is, is that uh, the folks there at pastors.com do not practice what we would call best practices in responsible journalism. And what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, if, regardless of which media sources you prefer to read or watch, whether it be Fox News, MSNBC, The New York Times, or World Net Daily, or things like that. Responsible professional journalism, uh, oftentimes a, a, a journalist will get something wrong. They will, they will say something that isn't in accord with the actual facts. They'll say something that isn't quite right or they missed a nuance. As a result of it, in their reporting, um, they don't, they're not exactly, um, they, they didn't actually tell the truth. And so it's, it's very, 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 very common. Uh, if you, uh, you know, read any of these papers to see from time to time something called a retraction or, or an edit or, you know, uh, they'll, they'll put a post together that says, uh, this journalist said this in this article, and upon further investigation, we found that this is not exactly true. Here's what he should have said, or here's what the the, uh, the actual evidence demonstrates, and so this is officially a retraction. Okay, uh, The folks over there at pastors.com, they don't seem to issue very many retractions. In fact, I... I'm having a hard time recalling any time that they did. So here's the deal is, is that um, I'm glad that they pulled the Centering Prayer um, article down, but um, there was no explanation given. So we don't know if the reason why they pulled the uh, Centering Prayer article down is because they realized, whoa, that's not Christianity, 
or if they did it for self-preservation reasons uh, because they were they were getting beat up on the internet as a result of it and so they pulled it down as a means of spin control um and so but here's the deal if they were engaging in responsible journalism then they they have to they must issue a retraction in fact i'm going to issue a challenge to rick warren right here and right now uh, Rick, uh, you need to uh, have the folks there at yourpastors.com, uh, Rick Warren Ministry Toolbox, post a- an explanation as to why you pulled that article. If the reason why you pulled the article was because centering prayer is not compatible with biblical Christianity, then we need to hear that from you guys. Um, either, you know, You need to explain the dangers of centering prayer and how this is not, not, not... Uh, compatible with biblical Christianity, and so until they do that, um, then we—I think—we must all just assume that the reason they pulled this down, just like other things that they've pulled down off their website, was really just nothing more than political spin control. It's a matter of brand management, if you would, of the seeker-driven purpose dri- of the purpose-driven Rick Warren brand. Um, that's going to be my assumption until they prove otherwise by issuing a full-blown retraction as well as an explanation and warning regarding the dangers of contemplative prayer and centering prayer. Okay, so that just that, that's just kind of walking you through here. So now let's kind of come back, let's circle back, and let's talk about, okay, remember in the article itself, which I just read from my copy of it, which I, of course, you know, I took screenshots of it because I've learned over the years that things have a way of just whoosh disappearing from Rick Warren's ministry toolbox. Um, but uh, the uh, the gal who wrote that, Stacy Smith, pointed out that there were three Cistercian monks, um, these um, uh, who developed uh, contemplative prayer. And when you do the research, you find out who they were. They are Thomas Keating, Basil Pennington, and William Menninger. These are the guys who developed centering prayer. Now, that being the case, I think it's important for us to let, um. Uh, well, to let Thomas Keating himself explain to us, you know, what's going on? What's what's the fruit of this centering prayer? What What's the worldview that we need to understand that this is where it's leading us? And so this is an actual YouTube video um, that uh, that was put together with Thomas Keating, uh, the one of the three primary redevelopers, if you would, of centering prayer in the modern era, um, him explaining, you know, the kind of the spiritual understanding of what goes along with it. Now, this audio is tough, actually very difficult to understand. But, uh, you know, listen carefully and I'll point things out along the way. It's actually, it's easy to understand him. It's not so easy to understand the question that's being asked. Uh, for me, the spiritual journey from, in, in, I guess what I'm really looking for here is, if you were to talk about the person that's lost in, in the false self, and, you know, the, the, we're trying to reach the person in the suburbs that's leading the false life that thinks the car and the, and the plastic surgery will make them happy. Where is that, what is that spiritual journey from the mundane to the divine? Okay, now this is important. The question has to do with, you know, describe, and he's only got like two, three minutes to do it. The spiritual journey from the false self 
from the mundane to the divine. The false self is the one is the self that believes it would be happy with a a, a new beamer and some plastic surgery. Okay, so that's the foil here. And now Keating's going to basically ask the question, how much time have you got? Everyone's going to laugh. And then he's going to start to get into his answer. And I want you to listen carefully to what he believes regarding the divine. This is critical and important because I don't think you can divorce centering prayer from this spiritual religious worldview. Listen carefully. Well, have you got a few hours? <laughs> well, uh, since you uh, want a short answer, uh, the beginning of the spiritual journey is is the realization, not just the information, but a real interior conviction that there is a higher power or God or to make it as easy as possible for everybody that there is an other capital O second step so first step on your spiritual journey is recognizing there's a God or you can call him the other Capital O. It's weird to me that um, in all the time I've spent uh, hanging out with and studying emergence up close by attending their conferences, uh, sitting down and just listening as they have their emergent conversations and things like that. One of the major themes of the emergent movement, and the emergent movement is full-blown into this postmodern mysticism, is the constant reference back to recognizing God in the other it's weird. Keating's language almost mirrors theirs identically, but we continue. So first step, recognize that there is an other, capital O. To try to become the other, still a capital O. Okay. Try to become the other. Step two is to become God. Notice what he did there, Okay. I'm going to back this up because, you, folks, what you've just heard is the same lie that the devil told uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Oh, you will not die if you eat the fruit. God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows on the day that you eat of it, you will become like God. Okay? I'm surprised we don't hear a slithering sound or you know, or the sound of a... Of, of of the tongue of a snake going, you know, you know th- th- I mean, that's how demonic this really is. Listen again. And what you're listening for is the technique he's using. Watch what he does. He says the first step is to recognize that there's a God or the other. And so what he does is he takes the word God and he puts a, a so-called synonym in its place. So God, you rec- first thing you have to recognize that there's a God let me change the name of God here, and what uh, what I mean by that is you need to recognize that there is an other, capital O. That The reason why he's putting a substitute word in there is so that step two doesn't jolt you out of your, you know, out of your mind and you flee the building realizing, whoa, this is a satanic lie. Because... You know, if you take, if you don't take, let him exchange the word God for the word other, 
Step two is you need to become God. Listen again. Watch how he does this. So he takes the word God, he exchanges it for the word other, and then he says that you need to the second step of your journey of your journey is for you to learn how to become the other. In other words, you need to become God. I mean, listen. Real interior conviction that there is a higher power or God, or to make it as easy as possible for everybody, that there is an other capital O. Yeah, to make it easy as possible, that's so that you don't you don't go. What you want? I have to learn how to become God. Are you crazy? See that? So, no, this will this will help you. Just recognize that there's another, and then step two. Second step: to try to become the other. So the next step is you need to try to become God. Still a capital O. And finally, the realization. That there is no other. You and the other are one. So step three is for you to realize that you already are God. Yeah, again, I come back to the article from Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox because uh, remember the language that was used in that article. I want to remind you of it. Here we go. From the second paragraph, centering prayer is an ancient form of prayer that is a combination of prayer and meditation. The practice was revived in the 1960s and 70s by three Cistercian monks. The practice of centering prayer allows for the recognition of thoughts and gently releases them into the hands of God. This form of prayer relies on the awareness that the Holy Spirit resides in the one who prays, connecting them heart to heart with God. In other words, as one of the three people who revived this practice makes it clear, that understanding of heart to heart with God, it's the realization that you and God are one. That's what centering prayer really is all about. We continue. Always have been, always will be. You just think that you aren't. And that uh, as the spiritual journey unfolds, one lets go of these false beliefs in one's separation from God and begins to perceive in all of events and in other people the same presence of God that one is more and more aware of in oneself at the deepest level. And thus the words of Paul become something that makes sense, that God is all in all. In other words, in a sense, we not only become God, but are God. So one of the three men who developed centering prayer, you just heard him say, it's this understanding that we are God. Again, let me play this for you. Because, I mean, if your head is spinning and you're going, what? Right. That's what's really at the heart of centering prayer. The guy who developed it, who designed it, who reinvented it, he, this is one of the three. 
okay? He makes it clear that this is all about, well, being God. That means you being God. No. In other words, in a sense, we not only become God, but are God. Our little local consciousness disappears with death because it's mostly based on the brain, but the but the consciousness of our consciousness, which is God within us, remains forever. And so as we move into the God consciousness, so to speak, then we perceive how everything we've done that was good was not us, but God in us, serving God in other people. God in us, loving God in other people. Or simply, God in us, greeting God in other people. God in us, greeting God in other people. If you've ever heard a liberal emergent talk about discovering the God in the other, this is where this language comes from. So that, folks, was the, um, well, that was just the first shot. That's the... Um, that's the one to wake you up, to make you realize, whoa, holy smokes, there's something rotten in Denmark. R right. Um, when you hear people talk about centering prayer, um, yeah, keep in mind, the guys who developed it, this is one of them. This is one of the three that developed it. And the spirituality that he's embracing is basically pantheism that uh, you have a divine spark within you, you are divine, you are God. And it's all about, so step one is to recognize that there is a God or the other. Step two is for you to try to become the other, that would be God. And step three is to recognize that there is no other, that you already are God. That's really what's at the heart of this practice of centering prayer. That's the spirituality that this thing is married to. And the last time I checked, that spirituality didn't get divorced from the practice of centering prayer. Now, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to let uh, Thomas Keating, well, tell us more from an interview that he did regarding centering prayer and have him explain for him, you know, himself what it's really all about. As a res I mean, this is him one of the three guys who revived it, him describing the practice. I mean, this would be, basically, let me give you a metaphor that you can hang on to. Listening to Thomas Keating talk about what centering prayer is all about and what it does and the spirituality that goes along with it is the equivalent of having Steve Jobs give you an internal tour of how an Apple computer works. Okay. So we're dealing with one of the one of the guys who knows centering prayer on the same level that that uh, Steve Jobs understood Apple computer. You, you get what I'm saying here? So yeah, you don't want to miss the next part of this edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, if you're attending a Christian church that's teaching centering prayer or the Lectio Divina, mantra meditation, stuff like that, they're teaching you pantheism, that ultimately that you are God. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, next segment. Uh, This is from an interview that Father Thomas Keating, uh, one of the three revisers or reinventors or, um, uh, I don't know, the the word here is animator, of the uh, practice known as centering prayer. Okay, to say that anyone who would deny that Father Keating knows about centering prayer or or somebody who says, Father Keating, he doesn't know about centering prayer, just doesn't know what they're talking about. This is one of the guys that is one of the modern day inventors of it. He's the one who put this practice together. And you heard from him already that this is all about a, a spiritual journey where you ultimately learn that you are God. Okay. Um, so this is an in, uh, interview that he did with the Garrison Institute in October of 2008 where they interview him regarding centering prayer. So here's uh, the, uh, the modern, one of the modern-day founders of this practice discussing it and what it's all about and what it does and how you do it. Here we go. So, Father Thomas, welcome to the Garrison Institute. We're so happy to have you here. It's really, really great that you have returned. So tell us about centering prayer, and particularly the role of centering prayer in an uncentered time. Well, obviously, the role of centering prayer in an unsettled time is to center. Right. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a term that comes from St. John of the Cross in the introduction to what he calls the living flame of love, one of his most mature uh, and it's not so it comes from the roman centering prayer comes from the roman catholic mystic saint john of the cross you should already be fleeing if anyone wants to teach this to you and thinks that it's a good thing not a bad term for what we're trying to do because as he says the center of of the soul is god and so as we the center of the soul is God. So centering prayer is all about learning that the center of your soul is God. Behind the 
perplexities and the suffering and the turmoil, at least as an obsession or, a, or over emphasis on it, uh, we, we move towards or turn towards our inmost center and we move from ordinary psychological awareness to the spiritual level of our being, the level of intuition and, and our capacity for God. Uh, St. Thomas uses that phrase, that the soul is a certain capacity for God. So, so that's basically what we are. And so to open to this capacity, we need to turn our attention from the preoccupations temporarily of outside in order to get the perspective on reality, which has God as its center. Uh, some uh, theologians have said, uh, God is reality. So not just our reality, but everything that is, uh, in a sense, is God in the sense of coming from the ultimate reality as the source, whether you consider this personal or, or impersonal. The ultimate reality is probably both, and adjusts to each uh, that exists according to its nature. So God is both personal and impersonal. Well, that sounds irrational, don't you think? But anyway, as we move towards the inner self, one uh, approaches what some folks call the true self. In the Ju Judeo-Christian tradition would be called the image of God or the image and likeness of God. Imago Dei. Um, the true self. Have you heard spiritual practitioners out there, you know, like Richard Foster, um, Ortberg, and others talking about the true self, the me I want to be, or emergent folks talking about the Imago Day? The likeness is what we don't have yet, or which we lost, depending on what your uh, religious understanding or perhaps your scientific preference might be because uh, in the perspective of evolution especially spiritual evolution uh, we are returning to our source spiritual evolution returning to our source this is the talk of monism by the way or as the Buddhists call it, and this is just a private interpretation, I hope they'll forgive me. Mm, so now he's quoting Buddhists favorably. Uh, emptiness is form, and form is emptiness. So, in the Trinitarian view of Christian, the ultimate source of the divinity called Father pours himself into the Son, empties himself into the Son, who is the form of all the possibilities contained in the original emptiness that is always coming into actuality. Wow. That's a satanic uh, Christology, if I ever heard one. Um, yeah, let's uh, back the audio up on that one. Listen to what he says. The Father is the ultimate reality who pours himself into the Son. Have you heard this Christology anywhere in the scriptures? I mean, that's the thing that seems to be missing here. Um, 
Thomas Keating, of course, one of the three primary men who are responsible for reviving the so-called practice of centering prayer, which evangelicals like uh, folks at Willow Creek and Saddleback and and others are embracing whole hog. Uh, of course, if you're just bored with your mundane day-to-day Christian life, try something new. Try this. Well, it comes complete with a Christology. Um, and uh, this is not a biblical Christology. Listen again. Emptiness is form, and form is emptiness. So, in the Trinitarian view of Christian, the ultimate source of the divinity called Father pours himself into the Son, empties himself into the Son, who is the form of all the possibilities contained in the original emptiness that is always coming into actuality. And this hmm. This guy doesn't sound like a Christian anything, does he? The Son returns everything he's received to the Source or the Father, as this term we use. And thus, form goes back to emptiness. And the Holy Spirit is the enormous love that is exchanged in the total self-emptying of the Trinitarian relationships and celebrates infinite love or compassion. And so it is this life going on within us that centering prayer is moving towards and so is it movements towards the center, our own center, which is also the center of everything else that exists, which is the ultimate reality or, or God in the label given by the Judeo-Christian. Mm-hmm. So centering moves us to the center of the ultimate reality. And Christians refer to it as God. But, you know, of course, if you're a Buddhist, you know, you know, you don't have to think that at all. I mean... Doesn't it sound like he's a universalist? All paths lead to the top of Mount Fuji, apparently. Traditions, but which could be called anything. Perhaps not be irreverent to say God doesn't call what doesn't get what we call him. He could be butch if you want. It's the faith in me. In God as the center of our being that is not only supporting us in existence, but it's welcoming us into his, into the, I should say, divine hospitality that is the only host that can give not just gifts, but itself to us. Does this sound like anything remotely resembling the, uh, the God or the Jesus described by the apostles in the New Testament? This is demonic. And so this, <laughs> the idea that God is the center of the soul, that's where we're going in centering prayer. And in, in all the uh, marvelous wisdom teachings of the world religions that are accessing the same reality, but from different terminology affected by their cultural conditioning. Mm, so the reason, so basically, every religion, really, all the wisdom of the all the ancient religions teach all of this, but just use different words and and language uh, to describe this reality that are culturally conditioned. Wow. Perhaps the uh, historical con- uh, culture that they came out of. You had said, if I understood it correctly. 
that God was filling the form of Jesus with his fullness. Yes. Does God also fill the form of each individual human with his fullness? I think so. So you're a little Jesus. You're a little Christ. God the Father pouring himself into your vessel, suppose. So there we go. In other words, all humans are the, so to speak, the body of Christ in the sense Christ is the term that Paul, St. Paul, gives to the uh, divine nature of Jesus, at least in Christian perspective. But you expressed it very well. I mean, Why hasn't the Roman Catholic Church um, thrown this guy out and anathematized this false theology? The emptiness of God is filling the form of the human nature of Christ. The emptiness of God is filling the form. What does that sentence mean? Emptiness can't fill anything. Oh, man. As far as a human nature can be filled. And uh, we call this historical person Jesus, but what makes this person immense importance to a Christian is that it's, it's a nature that is not just uh, pulled out of human beings and and divinized, uh, but rather is the divine nature coming into human nature and divinizing it, and it's us then who are called into the same process. So we're called in the same process of divin divination. We recognizing that we are already divine without the same uh, procedure. We come from nothing, and, and, the, and the human nature of Jesus comes from everything. So explain that a little more. We come from nothing. What does yeah. that mean? In other words, the, the fullness of the divinity right. manifests itself by emptying itself into the limitations of human nature with all its history and its woundedness or perhaps its unevolved situation. Okay, that's part one. Now for part two. So can a human experience uh, uh, unlimitedness and total purity? We, according to the early fathers of the church, through we become God right. in the same degree that God became human, which in the Christian teaching is complete, is total. So we become God. Wow. In everything except deliberate uh, rejection of God or sin. So we are, put it this way, to be a little more strong, we're each incarnations of God. And uh, to me, this is the, the Christian position in regard to reincarnation. It's not a final statement of denial or approval. It's, it expresses the mystery, which may be both. But the essential of the process of reincarnation in the more you know, profound expressions of it in the Eastern religions is, is simply to get out of the cycle, is to be transformed fully or to 
to reach the enlightened state of nirvana. And I think the Christian idea of transformation is not quite enough to fully express that. The term divinization or deification that are often used in the Eastern Orthodox tradition expresses that uh, right in our faces, so to speak. And it's thoroughly present in the... You'll notice that he keeps referring not really to Scripture because <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach this. Uh, no, he's referring to particular traditions, you know, Buddhist, um, Hindu, Eastern Orthodox, all about you being becoming God. Western liturgy, but not spoken of quite as vigorously as, as perhaps it needs to be in our time. Because it's, it's the coming of God into society through the manifestations of the divine in each of us, calling us to participate in or co-create or perhaps co-redeem, if that's a word that is meaningful. So we get to co-redeem with Jesus wow, and co-create with God. Wow, who knew? Most people, which doesn't mean paying a price for our sins, but or gives, giving us a, a check to uh, pay for our misdeeds, but rather it means uh, manifesting the love of God in the human situation, which involves suffering and sometimes suffering for others, since the human family is a one species and has one source, one destiny, and so we're so interconnected and interdependent that what happens to one is happening to us all. And is that interdependence, in Buddhism that interdependence is a nature of the universe, it is a self-arising, and that interdependence is, um, I'm saying, non-dependent upon a deity, it is just a a part of the nature of what is. In yes. your view, is that interdependence because of the, the extraordinary all-permeating quality of divinity? Or is it an independent interdependence? Well, this, this is a question that needs to be discussed among those who have experience in their respective traditions and uh, and have understood fully their own tradition and uh, its uh, its openness to to the fact that uh, it's impossible to use words or concepts to describe because this reality is uh, is both yes and no at one time, both one and two, and both dual and non-dual, and these are things that our rational intellect just can't handle at the same time. And so it's, it's the intuition into the unity of, of the opposites that uh, begins to give us... Now, just a reminder, this is an interview regarding the spirituality of centering prayer. And the interviewee from the Garrison Institute you know, it's basically comparing notes between uh, Keating's philosophy and Buddhism. And, and wouldn't you know it, there seems to be like a whole lot of common ground there. 
certain sense of the what I like to call the mystery because it's the mystery is what contains all truth without expressing it in uh, concepts or words or terms that can only be pointed to. Is the divinity within us and we recognize it or is there the potential for the divinity with us but we have to call it? Well, it's both. This is one of the things that I mean when they say you can't express it in one term. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so it's both, whatever that means. Uh, where does the Bible teach any of this? And by the way, again, the reason I'm pointing this out is because uh, it's not an accident that the article regarding centering prayer appeared at Rick Warren's ministry uh, toolbox. Uh, Rick Warren, his theology is drifting like you wouldn't believe, and he's leading basically the way for this new kind of spirituality that is anti-doctrinal, highly mystical in its orientation, and, well, the purpose-driven movement isn't really hostile to uh, contemplative um, uh, spirituality and centering prayer. If they were truly hostile to it, they would have never published that article. So we're going to the source. This is one of the three men responsible for reviving the practice. And he is describing the spiritual concepts and philosophy behind it. This isn't a theology, by the way, because none of this is revealed in God's Word. This is all based upon what he's learned while he himself has been meditating and after he himself has discovered that he is God. Keep in mind, Thomas Keating, through his spiritual mysticism, has discovered the truth that he is in fact God. So he's speaking as a little deity. And when you express all of it, it sounds like a contradiction. But it, it isn't. It's just our intellect that can't deal with the full reality or translate it into articulation that's conceptually available for the human reason. But it's totally real, totally present. So, so the divine presence is not only within us, and has to be if we're if, if if God is existence, which seems to be about as close to a good definition as anybody has come. Even the great Hindu mystic Ramana Maharshi said that the great Hindu mystic weird uh, um, phrase uh, to describe a Hindu mystic coming from a, a man who's supposedly the father of one of the most popular Christian pra uh, spiritual discipline practices out there, don't you think? The I am that I am of God's words to Moses in Exodus is the best definition there is of, of the ultimate reality. But it's, 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 it's saying something that is also not quite true. That is, that Everything is in relation to God, if it exists at all, because God is the source of all that exists. So, so everything, everything is in relation to God. Yes. Not everything is of God or is filled with God. Well, it depends again now what you mean by relationship. And relations is something that develops or can grow. It becomes more profound, more integrated. So, so the discovery of the of the great uh, teachers or wisdom teachers seems to be that 
that this existence that we participate in is also manifesting itself in us, not with the same infinite qualities, but with a participation in all that God is to a degree that is so far beyond human expectations or imaginings that put it at its lowest element, it's, it's as if we were God, according to John of the Cross. He's leaving just a little space for the fact that God is not just us, but everything else. But the movement of, of awakening is to discover that we actually are God in virtue of being existing. Now the, other, the traditions all add other aspects of this relationship, which is peculiar to humans or to persons who have an intellect and will, who reflect on these mysteries, who can be grateful or who can love God in return. And so there's, there's an ontological union that is to be discovered in virtue of our um, source in God. And there is the experience of compassion or the union of love, which continues to go on relating from love to love. Tonight I was hoping to speak a little the first time on the science of love, which is a knowledge that is not knowledge in the intellectual sense primarily, but which is the unfolding of the, uh, or the waking up to this presence of God Part two. All right, now for part three. So what does an ordinary person do to awaken this extraordinary capacity? Okay, so now we're getting to the nuts and bolts. What can you as an ordinary person do to awaken yourself to this extraordinary capacity of being deified, divinized? Be still. That's the advice of, of the Psalms. Or shut up, it might be clearer for the street language. Which doesn't mean to try too hard, but to uh, open and consent and surrender. And, and uh, as I understand most of the contemplative meditative traditions in the world religions, there are many ways of doing so, but they all are pretty well going into the direction of, of cultivating interior silence. Mm -hmm. So contemplative spiritualities of all the different world religions cultivate silence. That's a major part of learning how to discover the God inside of you. Uh, humility. Mm -hmm and the acceptance of uh, our nothingness. Mm -hmm. mm, the acceptance of our nothingness. Mm. Not that it's nothing at all, but it, it is letting go of all identification of ourselves as an object, or God as an object, or other things as an object. It's the freedom of subjectivity. Mm -hmm just to be whoever we really are. Right. And, and so it's, 
it's it's a development of being and allowing ourselves and anything else that happens to us to be. That's the basic consent. What you do with that then depends on the inspiration of what we would call grace. Mm -hmm. Others call it follow your heart. But it means the divine action in us which is leading us into ever-deepening levels of participation in the in the divine way of being human, which the prophets of Israel and Jesus, in a special way for Christians, have manifested in considerable detail uh, that one finds in sacred literature. So the Buddha also is an outstanding example of the psychological experience of the path to enlightenment. Now, now he's quoting the, the Buddha favorably, and oh, yeah, he's a great example of somebody who's gone down the psychological path of, the, of enlightenment. This isn't Christianity. This is full-blown Eastern mysticism um, with the understanding that, well, we're just talking about it in the way that, that um, the, the Christian tradition has talked about it. But it doesn't matter what the words are or what tradition you arrive at. Uh, or what tradition you use to be the vehicle to take you to this, as long as you uh, ultimately shut up, be silent, and know that you are God. Compassion and, and unity. There's a phrase I've mentioned a couple of times in talks, and it would might be appropriate to repeat it here. The broad outlines of this process of transformation or deification or enlightenment, whatever terms you use, pretty much on the same um, line of of understanding, although using also different methods or paths of, of pursuing it. And so the first stage of this journey to reduce it very much, is to discover that there is an other, capital O. Mm -hmm. And so this is the realization and acceptance that there is a higher power, to put it in its lowest common denominator, but that this is actually the infinite transcendent God of the Christians, who is also equally infinitely imminent. So that there is this other is first realization perhaps on the path to unity. Next step might be called to become the other. So there to get there it is again. So you want you want to learn how to become God. For God to, to know the other is to be the other, the Trinitarian relationships. For us to become God is to be God, not in a numerical theological sense, but in the fullest possible psychological, spiritual sense, which isn't enough to describe it, divinization, 
is perhaps the best word to describe it in that particular tradition. I mean, is, it, it, this is the first lie of the devil revived with spiritual language thrown around it. You are God, or you can become God. How is this any different than the New Age spirituality of Shirley MacLaine? If you're not familiar with Shirley MacLaine, and maybe it's because you're a young person, older folks like me, we we remember Shirley MacLaine's uh, television miniseries, Out on a Limb. Yeah, that's the name of it. In fact, here's a, here's a, a few minutes from uh, Shirley MacLaine having a conversation with a spiritual guru out on the beach overlooking the Pacific Ocean while they describe, um, well, a, a theology that sounds exactly like the theology that I'm hearing from uh, Thomas Keating, one of the three inventors or revisers, uh, modern-day um, recreators of the so-called centering prayer. Yeah, listen in. Believe in themselves. Isn't it difficult to love somebody who doesn't love himself? Yeah, it's like they don't know who they are, you know. I mean, if you don't know who you are, you can't love yourself. Don't you ever get frustrated when you feel like you're not really being yourself? Yes, all the time. Right. That's what all the masters have tried to help us with. What masters? You know, Christ, Buddha, the Indian avatars. They were really just master politicians who went right to the root of the problems in society. The individual. Some of them said if everybody believed that he was a part of God, the kingdom of heaven was within. And that if we took responsibility for that, that we wouldn't get so frustrated with ourselves. With ourselves or with anybody else. But it seems like it takes multiple lifetimes to come to that simple realization. Why isn't reincarnation in the Bible? Why isn't it taught in Christianity? Ah, well, that brings us to the controversial Second Council of Constantinople. Yeah, now, watch this. So why isn't reincarnation taught in the Bible? Answer, oh, it, it was the evil uh, Second Council of Constantinople. This is the same argument that uh, a lot of people use regarding uh, the Gnostics. Why was Gnosticism... Uh, how how come the Gnostic Gospels weren't accepted as Gospels? Answer: Oh, because of the evil Emperor Constantine and the and the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, they got rid. Yeah, you know, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with picking books of the Bible. Anyway, so yeah, so th this is the 1987 version of this argument. Why isn't uh, reincarnation in the Bible? Oh, well, because they the evil. Second Council of Constantinople got rid of it. <laughs> it's the truth, but they wanted to suppress it. Listen to this. 53 AD, which was so dominated by the Emperor Justinian that the Pope, in protest, refused to attend. So, Justinian got his way. And in spite of the fact that reincarnation could be found in many of the writings of the early church fathers, his council condemned the idea of the pre-existence of the soul. Emperor Justinian. What do you want to do a thing like that for? <laughs> well, I guess once you get used to the idea of being an emperor, you don't want to have to believe that someday you might have to come back as a pig stopper. <laughs> yeah, but why did the church go along with it? Well, I think at first Justinian pressured him into it, but 
then later I think they went along with it because they just didn't want people to assume their responsibility for their own karmic destiny. You notice the template here. The template's the same. The argument's a little bit different, but the, the gist of the argument's the same. Karmic destiny. Well, you know, if I really believed that I'd been before, I was going to live again. And that everything I put out there would come back. There would be no doubt in my mind that I'd be completely responsible for everything that happens in my life. Exactly. That's mind-boggling, David. I mean, when you think of what that really means. You want to know a good exercise that helps you get in touch with the realization that we each have got inside of us? Exercise. Yeah, here's an exercise so that you can realize that you have God inside of you. Here's what you do. Just stand up, hold your arms out like this, and say, the kingdom of heaven is within. I love myself. The kingdom of heaven is within. I love myself. Now, wait, better than that. Say, uh, say, I and God are one. No, wait, 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 better than that. I got the best one. This is the best one. Just say, I am God. David, I can't say that. See how little you think of yourself? You can't even say the words? I am God. I am God. A little louder, please, with maybe a little more conviction. I am God. I am... Look, if I'm God, what does that make you? Well, we always see in others what we see in ourselves. So there's the theology of the other right there from Shirley MacLaine's miniseries based on her book, Out on a Limb. I am God. I am God. I am God. I am God. I am I God. God. I am God. I am God. I am God. I am I God. Am God. I, I am God. God. I am God. <laughs> so there's Shirley MacLaine and her spiritual guru announcing to the world, I am God. And how is this any different than the spirituality taught by Thomas Keating, the one of the modern day inventors and revivers of the spiritual practice known as centering prayer. And according to him, centering prayer is all about discovering this idea uh, that you are God. And finally, unity consciousness might be described as the realization there is no other. Mm. <laughs> that is to say, there is only 
this God manifesting in everything and in, and in us as God experiencing our particular uniqueness and thus learning what it's like to be our human nature and to express there insofar as we consent and allow this to happen. And that may involve some cooperation and collaboration. But we don't bring this about by our own power. But we work at it somewhere that somewhat the way that you treat the symptoms of an illness. You don't cure yourself, but you can take the medicine and you can submit to the psychotherapy that's involved, or the divine therapy. That is the term I've suggested for the searching, healing, in other terminology, redemptive or salvific work of God in which he is, is introducing us to the ultimate reality that there isn't anything else at the deepest level of realization, which does not annihilate the consciousness or the uniqueness of, of creatures, but as simply put in St. Paul's teaching, God is all in all. Or when you use Christ in the, as a synonym for God as he does, Christ is everything in everyone. What's interesting about that formula, which I actually heard from someone else originally, but it struck me very much, is that the first two others are capital. But since uh, if you're reading, if you're saying this, you don't know whether they're capitals or small o's. And so the final one is the ultimate question that you could think of for the rest of your life. Is it a small o or a big o? There is no other. Or is it that there is no other small o? Meaning that God is everything. Right. This is the exact, exact same spirituality as Shirley MacLaine's New Age mysticism. Us and all things and all events, or as the Buddhists put it, if I understand it correctly, nirvana is samsara. Do you think that's acceptable? Uh, so nirvana is samsara. That's apparently the truth of the universe taught by a Cistercian monk, the uh, creator of, one of the three creators of Centering Prayer. I've heard some Tibetan students of Trungpa Rinpoche say that, but that's why I venture to say it. That's another one that can be said and not said, I think. Yes, I think so too. So it leaves you without the absolute certitude that it's not possible for religion to provide. It's always a leap of faith 
into the unknown it's through trust, confidence in what is. It's a leap of faith, but it's a But it has to be an experience. Yes. Faith is really, uh, goes through these processes of growth. There's faith in the other, faith right. in becoming the other, and the ultimate faith is beyond faith mm -hmm. to be the other. Right. Or vice versa, to let the other be you. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, that was Thomas Keating, like I've been pointing out, one of the three Cistercian monks uh, responsible for reviving the uh, centering prayer. And um, just, just ask a question. Do you think that um, you can divorce the practice of centering prayer from this spirituality? I, I don't see how it can be done. I don't see how you can say, well, listen, listen, that, you know, Thomas Keating, you know, he's he's doing it wrong. Well, he's one of the three guys that invented it. Um, yeah, but see, Chris, you, you, Christians, you know, can do centering prayer and not believe that they're God. Then if that's the case, then my question is, why would you want to? This isn't the prayer that Jesus taught. Uh, this is something completely different and there is a so when you hear about contemplative spirituality when you hear about contemplative prayer when you hear about centering prayer it doesn't matter if it's rick warren's ministry toolbox teaching you like they did last week um no it doesn't matter this is what this is all about. You go to the inventors of it, and what is it that they're trying to teach you by doing this? By doing these practices, you then come to the conclusion that you are God. That's the goal of centering prayer, according to one of the three guys who made it. So why would any Christian want to do this? That's my question. Well... Like I said at the beginning of the program, I'm going to give the last word to uh, Marcia Montenegro. Of uh, She wrote an article back in uh, winter of 2005 in the volume 11, number one edition of the Midwest Christian Outreach Journal. The Midwest Christian Outreach Journal. You can find them by Googling them, but I'm going to read her article. And what's important for you to understand is this, is that this spirituality, this New Age, Eastern pantheistic spirituality is integral, is a key part of contemplative prayer, the, the Lectio Divina practice that um, Rob Bell taught. It's, it, it's integral to centering prayer. And, uh, you, you know, you just can't divorce this stuff. And, the, the modern purveyors of this include men like Thomas Keating, but they also include Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, and John Ortberg. These are the guys who are out there promoting and you know shilling for this stuff, as well as, don't forget, Pete Scazzaro. Pete Scazzaro and his emotionally healthy spirituality is basically... 
a, a rebranded and repackaged version of all of this stuff, and he learned it from the Trappists, from the Cistercians. Every year he spends time in a Cistercian Trappist monastery doing this stuff, and he's repackaged it, and, you know, it's so, and yeah, that's important. And who's been promoting speak, uh, Pete Scazzaro? Rick Warren. Is Again, is it any wonder why that article about contemplative uh, centering prayer appeared at the Rick Warren Ministry Toolbox? I don't, It's as far as I'm concerned, it's not a stretch at all. It makes perfect sense. This is the kind of stuff these guys have been dabbling with for years. And uh, it, it, it's just crazy. Anyway, um, so let me read this article by uh, Marsha Montenegro. Um, she begins with some quotes. The first quote, this is a quote from, uh, from Thomas Keating. Quote, God's first language is silence. Second quote from Richard Foster. Progress and in intimacy with God means progress towards silence. Third quote, Basil Pennington, co-founder of Centering Prayer, also a monk, uh, Cistercian. The important thing is that we are relaxed and our back is straight so that the vitalizing energies can flow freely. Quote number four is from Thomas Merton. Contemplation is a pure and virginal knowledge, poor in concepts, poorer still in reasoning, but able by its very poverty and purity to follow the word wherever he may go. Marsha writes, she says, Contemplative prayer, also called centering prayer or listening prayer, has been taught by Roman Catholic monks Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating, and Basil Pennington, as well as Quaker Richard Foster and others. There is no one authority on this method, nor is there necessarily a consistent teaching on it, though most of the founding teachers quote mystics along with the Hindu and Buddhist spiritual teachers. According to contemplativeoutreach.org, quote, Centering prayer is drawn from ancient prayer practices of the Christian contemplative heritage, notably the fathers and mothers of the desert, Lectio Divina, praying the scriptures, the Cloud of Unknowing, St. John of the Cross, and St. Teresa of Avila. It was distilled into a simple method of prayer in the 1970s by three Trappist monks, Father William Menninger, Father Basil Pennington, Abbot Thomas Keating, at the Trappist Abbey, St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. It should be added during the 20 years, 1961 to 1981, when Keating was, a ba was abbot, St. Joseph's held dialogues with Buddhist and Hindu representatives, and a Zen master gave a week-long retreat to the monks. A former Trappist monk who had become a transcendental meditation teacher also gave a session to the monks. The influence of Buddhism and Hinduism on contemplative prayer, hereafter referred to as CP, is apparent. Words such as detachment, transformation, emptiness, enlightenment, and awakening swim in and out of the waters of these books. The use of such terms certainly mandates a closer inspection of what is being taught, even though contemplative prayer is presented as a Christian practice. Themes that one finds echoed in the CP movement include the notions that true prayer is silent, is beyond words, is beyond thought, 
does away with the false self, triggers transformation of consciousness, and is an awakening. Suggested techniques often include breathing exercises, visualization, repetition of a word or a phrase, and detachment from thinking. As we see from the quotes above, silence is assumed to be God's language. This seems contradictory since language usually involves the use of words or at least symbols from whence did this idea arise. Well, some quote Psalm 62 verse 5 that says, My soul, wait in silence, for God only, for my hope is from him. But the passage is about depending on God for refuge and salvation, not a form of prayer. The emphasis is expectation for God only. Only God can save. Even if the psalmist was praying the verse is not telling us that silence is the only way to pray or that we must approach God in silence. However, Keating states that vocal prayer is not the most profound prayer. It is a Zen Buddhist concept that truth is beyond words. This is also a Taoist view. Zen's roots are in Taoism and Buddhism. Zen teaches that truth must be realized as one practices sitting meditation, or Zazen, cultivating an empty mind by letting go of thoughts so that rational thinking is transcended, or perhaps as is the Rizani school of Zen, one's awareness is triggered by koans, such as, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or, what was your face before you were born? According to Zen, Buddha's real message remained always unspoken and was such that when words attempted to express it, they made it seem as if it were nothing at all. Another popular Bible passage used to advocate silent meditation as prayer is Psalm 46, verse 10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. However, this is being taken out of context. A study of the psalm shows that this is actually a rebuke from God to those striving against him. Some translations render it as, Cease striving and know that I am God. Charles Spurgeon remarks on verse 10, quote, Hold off your hands, ye enemies. Sit down and wait in patience, ye believers. Acknowledge that Jehovah is God, ye who feel the terrors of his wrath. Adore him and him only, ye who partake in the protection of his grace. Praying in silence or ruminating on a passage of scripture in silence is normal, but silence should not be regarded as superior to words nor does the Bible give any support to the notion that the language of God is silence. Interestingly, Foster even warns about silent contemplative prayer, saying that it is for mature believers that we are entering deeply into the spiritual realm where we may encounter spiritual beings who are not on God's side. He suggests a prayer of protection in which one surrounds himself with the light of Christ, saying, All dark and evil spirits must now leave, and other words to keep evil ones at bay. I, I could not help but think of my New Age days when I was taught to invoke a white light of protection before psychic activity or contact with the dead. Jesus, in praying for his disciples, said, Keep them from the evil one. But this was a petition to guard us from Satan's schemes, not a formula for warding off evil spirits. Oh, 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 you know, for warding off evil spirits while we pray. Silence can be soothing and comforting 
We cannot get deep into insights when we are quiet, but simply trying to be quiet is not prayer, and it does not support the view that real prayer is wordless. After all, God has given us a written revelation, and God's laws and words are acclaimed throughout the Bible, such as Psalm 119, which extols God's word as a treasure and a lamp. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, we learn, quote, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus declares to the Father in John 17:17, 17, 17, Thy word is truth. According to Keating, contemplative prayer should be detachment from thought, getting into a state of no thinking, and that it is the time to let go of all thoughts, even the best of thoughts, so that only pure awareness exists. He even claims that the Holy Spirit will not barge in if we are using reason and intellect, and it is only when we are willing to abandon our very limited human modes of thought and concepts and open a welcoming space that the Spirit will begin to operate in us at this divine level. When we center, we practice leaving our human thoughts and reasoning behind and attending to the divine, to the Spirit. This presents a radical redefinition of prayer as well as a false duality between thought or reason and spirituality, a concept common in the New Age. Pennington discusses a shift in consciousness and going beyond ordinary consciousness into a state of pure consciousness in which we leave the false self for the true self and attaining a unity consciousness with God. He quotes the fathers as saying, So long as a man is aware he is praying, he is not yet praying. And he quotes Merton that we should rise above thought. Pennington has a chapter titled Pure Consciousness in which he states that God is known in pure consciousness rather than by some subject-object knowledge. A writer for Youth Specialties, an organization devoted to youth ministries, states that his interest in contemplative prayer began by reading Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and later mystics like Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, and Morton Kelsey. He built a prayer room and reports, quote, In that space, I lit candles, burned incense, hung rosaries, and listened to tapes of Benedictine monks. I meditated for hours on words, images, and sounds. I reached the point of being able to achieve alpha brain patterns, the state in which dreams occur while still awake and meditating. This sounds like going into an altered state of consciousness, a light trans state, which is the same state one enters Eastern-slash-New Age meditation, and which parallel techniques of self-hypnosis. In fact, the purpose of Eastern New Age meditation is to go beyond the mind because of the belief that the mind is a barrier to spiritual enlightenment. This same writer also states that a retreat at a retreat, quote, we held thin place services in reference to a belief that in prayer the veil between us and God becomes thinner. Entire nights were devoted to guided meditations, drum circles, and soul labs. Yet in the Bible, meditations on God or on the words of God are never presented as an exercise without thinking. Many of the words translated as meditation in the Bible are words meaning to muse, ponder, utter, 
or to make a sound. Most of these words are in the Psalms where David is praising the precepts and words of God that affir- and affirming that these are what we should learn, obey, and think upon. This definitely is not leaving ordinary thinking for another level of consciousness, nor do we take actions to make a non-existent veil between God and us thinner. Did not the death of Jesus on the cross rip the heavy veil in the Holy of Holies of the temple forever serving as a symbol of the opening of opening the way to God for those who believe? Due to Eastern and New Age influences in our culture, the word meditation has come to mean a technique to enter another state of consciousness, to go beyond thinking or to realize spiritual enlightenment. We cannot read these techniques and purposes into the biblical word translated as meditation, which originates from several different Hebrew words. The context of these words indicate an active pondering or a thinking and a learning neither a technique nor a disengagement from the mind. Thomas Merton claims that, quote, the superficial I is not our real self, but only our individuality and empirical self, not the hidden and mysterious person in whom we subsist before the eyes of God. This kind of thinking is found also in Keating and Pennington. Keating states that, Contemplative prayer takes us to a place, quote, in which which the knower, the knowing, and that which is known are all one. Awareness alone remains. The one who is aware disappears along with whatever was the object of consciousness. This is what the divine union is. Keating and Merton both discuss the false self and the true self. Keating capitalizes self and states, God and our true self are not separate. Though we are not God, and God and our true self are the same thing. According to Merton, our external everyday self is mostly a fabrication and is not our true self, which is not easy to find. It is hidden in obscurity and nothingness at the center where we are in the direct dependence on God. Buddhism teaches that our identities are merely fleeting images or impressions like images on film or a sequence of happenings of a process, and that we must discover our true nature, the Buddha nature. The conventional self or the person is composed mainly of a history of consisting of selected memories. And as one Zen Buddhist says, there is no you to say I, What we call I is just a swinging door which moves when we inhale and when we exhale. And when your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing, no I, no world, no mind, nor body, just a swinging door. Self is illusory in Hinduism, Taoism, and Buddhism because the only reality is the absolute, the Tao, or the Buddha nature. The contemplative prayer teachers do not say that we are really God, but they present a dichotomy between a false and a true self. The Bible talks about the old sin nature versus the new creature in Christ. It is not put in terms of true and false or illusion and truth, but rather in terms of bondage to sin and regeneration. It is not a matter of awareness, but rather a matter of being born again and being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Merton does not acknowledge this point in one book, 
though he still speaks of false and true selves, sometimes in Jungian psychological terms, sometimes in spiritual terms. Is our sin nature a false self? Not false in the sense of not being real, certainly. Such terms echo Eastern concepts and at the very least are confusing and misleading. Most of the contemplative prayer teachers announce that contemplative prayer is not a technique, and then they go on to recommend various techniques. Pennington offers three rules or guides which include being relaxed, to be in faith and love to God who dwells in the center of your being, and to, and to take up a love word, and whenever you become aware of anything, simply, gently return to the Lord with the use of your prayer word. Merton, Keating, Pennington, and sometimes Foster suggest repeating a word or a phrase such as, Jesus, Lord, Father, Friend, or the Jesus Prayer. During contemplative prayer, this can be repeated aloud, deep within, or used as a word to return to when one becomes aware of anything else. Pennington advises, memorize it and slowly repeat it to yourself, allowing it to interact with your inner world of concerns and memories and ideas. Keating credits the mystical cloud of unknowing for this idea and states that it should be a love word which will take us beyond our ordinary consciousness as an outreach of love to the infinite. Hmm. In Hinduism, Tibetan Buddhism, transcendental meditation, and sometimes in New Age meditation, a word called a mantra is given to the meditator to repeat. This is often the name of a deity or sometimes a phrase meaning, I am that. This, not that, or simply I am. The purpose of this mantra is self-purification and to become open to spiritual truths. Repeating a word or phrase over and over is also one of the tools of self-hypnosis. Many of the terms used by contemplative prayer teachers are the same terms used in hypnosis and in Eastern New Age teaching, i.e. shift in consciousness, pure consciousness, emptying the mind, creating a space, go beyond thought. Foster quotes heavily from contemplative prayer teachers and mystics. There are problematic statements such as, let me suggest we take an experiential attitude towards spiritual realities, or we are working with God to determine the future. Certain things will happen in history if we pray rightly, and when praying for others, we should quote, if it should not pray, if it be thy will to God. He advocates us using a visualization technique when praying in order to bring about the results. He also comments that God is not a male deity as opposed to a female deity. The focus on relaxation, repeating a word or phrase, concentrating on your breath, detachment from thought, and trying to go beyond reasoning should cause concern. Having learned and practiced various forms of Eastern and New Age meditation for many years before I became before becoming a Christian, I can attest to the ability to enter a light trance state using the techniques suggested by contemplative prayer advocates. This state in which one 
in which New Agers and others call pure consciousness, where one is suspended from active thought in the ability to make judgments. In fact, Zen Buddhism techniques that one needs to cultivate the ability to, to, to detach and to set aside judgment, the mind is open and receptive without critical thinking skills in place. Although Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are not immune to deception or delusion. Otherwise, the Bible would not so consistently warn believers about deception and false teachers. Do techniques bring closeness to God, especially when such techniques are parallel to Eastern religious practices? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 tells us, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near to the, uh, by the blood of Christ. We draw near to God through Christ, Hebrews 4.16, not through techniques. When First John talks about abiding in Christ, it speaks of following Christ's commandments and showing love for each other. Keating quotes from a major Buddhist text, the Diamond Sutra, to discuss letting go and tells the reader that although psychic powers such as levitation may result from, transcend, uh, from contemplative prayer, such powers are, quote, like the frosting on the cake and we cannot survive on frosting alone. And so if the reader is interested in psychic phenomena, to, quote, be sure to practice them under an approved master. Such warnings about getting attracted to psychic gifts resulting from meditation are commonly issued by those teaching Hindu and Buddhist meditation. Pennington writes of his admiration for the great yogi Swami Sadichi Dandandaji, I can't even pronounce it, and his, Pennington's approval of an American professor who, quote, in search of true wisdom, had gone to India to study under a Hindu Swami. He states that for, quote, most Hindus, Jesus is just one of the many manifestations of the one God, but that each person is entitled to have his or her own chosen deity or manifestation of God. Jesus is the manifestation for the West. Pennington also acknowledges that both Merton and another person saw the parallels of contemplative prayer with Sufi meditation and prayer, and he approves of Christians participating in transcendental meditation. He writes that contemplative prayer can be learned and used effectively by anyone, i.e. non-Christians, and that he has not hesitated to share it with anyone. One cannot help but wonder, where is Christ in any of this? Another contemplative prayer teacher heavily influenced uh, by the East in Thomas Merton. Merton was a man of great intelligence, and this is apparent in his writings, but he writes of his meetings with the Dalai Lama in Asia, saying he felt, quote, a spiritual bond with him. He stated that he found parallels between the meditation concepts and methods of the Catholic monks with the Tibetan Buddhists and he was even discussing establishing a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center in the United States. He also called Tibetan Buddhist leader uh, Chogyam uh, Trungpa wise and a genuine spiritual master. Merton was even considering being initiated into Dazogchen, an esoteric Tibetan Buddhist meditation practice, and was thinking of editing a book of Buddhist writings. 
These projects were cut short by his sudden accidental death in Asia in December of 1968, although he had previously written books on Zen Buddhism. Merton's Asian journals and the last words he penned reveal his fascination with Eastern beliefs and practices, while never showing an inclination to substitute Eastern beliefs for Christianity, he seemed to acknowledge Eastern religions as equally valid and showed a willingness to adapt some of their beliefs into his Christian ones. What else can one think when he writes of seeking advice on initiation into Dzogchen and thinking of helping to establish a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center? As a Christian believer, my thoughts would be to dialogue with those Buddhists in order to present Christ to them, not to seek initiation into their practices or to spread their teachings. Reflecting on God's word in the sense of thinking it over and letting it sink in is a normal way of learning and understanding. Using our mind is not a barrier to understanding God nor his word. In fact, in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38, it says, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This reference uh, uses Deuteronomy 6.5, which is a rendering in many versions as loving God with all of one's heart, soul, and strength or might. The Net Bible gives this explanation about the Hebrew word labab, which is translated as heart. In Deuteronomy 6.5, heart, in the Old Testament physiology, the heart was considered the seat of the mind or the intellect so that one could think with one's heart. Even the Greek word for heart, cardia, used in Matthew uh, 22 is translated as mind. And in other passages, another explanation, the Hebrew word for heart is leb. The Greek counterpart is cardia. Zadhiates says in his Hebrew lexicon that the main use of the word heart refers to the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. The heart is the seat of your intellect, feelings, and will, and it is almost it is almost a synonym for mind. Vine's expository dictionary states the heart, in its moral significance, is the old in the Old Testament includes emotions, the reason, and the will. The word translated as understanding, mind, and heart are often interchangeable in the Bible. The heart in the scriptures is the ver- is variously used sometimes for the mind and understanding, sometimes for the will, sometimes for the affections, sometimes for the conscience, sometimes for the whole soul. Generally, it denotes the whole soul of man and all the faculties of it, not absolutely, but as they are, are all one principle of moral operation, as they all concur in our doing good or evil. The false dichotomy in our culture between mind and heart does not exist in the Bible. Our, our culture associates feelings and often spirituality with the heart and separates that from thinking. But this is a modern concept, possibly a legacy from the Romantics, but not a biblical one. We see this fictitious dichotomy in contemplative prayer between the mind or reasoning and one on the one hand and feelings or spiritual experiences on the other. Foster creates a theme of this in one of his books in which he endorses the prayer of the mind apart from the prayer of the heart. The message comes across clearly that if one is using one's mind, 
One is unable to truly commune with God. One must go beyond the rational in order to actually experience closeness with God. One must go beyond words into silence to have true union with God. Not only are these concepts not supported by the Bible, but they are also they also set up the false expectations and are likely to evoke artificial experiences. Christian prayer should be taught as it is modeled in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Some key passages include Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, praying for our enemies. Matthew 6, verse 6, pray without showing off. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 7, verse 6, do not pray with repetitions. Matthew 9, 38, pray for, pray for God to send workers into his harvest. Matthew 21, 22, and James 1, through, uh, 1, verse 6, pray in faith. Luke 18, 1 through 8, pray, petition without losing heart. Ask in the name of Christ, John 16, 23 through 24, and Romans 8, 25 through 27. The Holy Spirit prays for us even when we don't know how to pray. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, pray uh, with the Spirit and with the mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, not mindlessly, but having an attitude of praying and being in the Lord in all times, in all things. James 5.14-16, pray for the sick. These prayers use words, and these prayers use thoughts, except for when the Holy Spirit prays for us. But that does not require techniques or a state of non-thinking, because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. A feature article on the Catholic Answers website warns, quote, Many people assume centering prayer is compatible with the Catholic tradition, but in fact the techniques of centering prayer are neither Christian nor are they prayer. They are at the level of human faculties and as such are not oper- an operation they are an operation of man and not of God. The deception and dangers can be grave. People promoting contemplative prayer often present a false dilemma between neatly packaged evangelical Christianity oriented toward logic and reason versus the experiential, mystical aspects of contemplative prayer. This idea is now becoming more common with the influence of postmodernism. This has been shown to be a false dilemma. By supporting reason and thinking as part of the communication with God, one is not discriminating against silent prayer, feelings, or experiences. Nowhere in the Bible is prayer a technique or a way to go beyond thinking. Creating a whole theology of prayer apart from the Bible is dangerous precisely because we are entering an area fraught with subjectivism, truth based on experience, and therefore an area where we can be deceived. Contemplative prayer teachers tell us that prayer is listening to and having divine union with God. But the Bible presents prayer as words and thoughts. Contemplative prayer tells us to focus inward, but the Bible admonishes us to focus outward on the Lord. An evaluation of contemplative prayer reveals it to be a melange of the New Age and Eastern-tinged techniques and concepts that exist outside of the Bible. Contemplative prayer is a misnomer since it is neither contemplation nor prayer as found in the Bible. We should be wary of any instruction that advises us to breathe a certain way before or during prayer, maintain a certain posture or bodily position, repeat a word or phrase 
or use a, use a phrase to say focused, go beyond thinking or thought, or be in silence in order to truly pray. Believe that contemplative prayer is true prayer. A great article from somebody who knows. That's Marsha Montenegro's um, article entitled, Contemplating Contemplative Prayer. Is it really prayer? The answer is no. So let me go back to um, what appeared at Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox at pastors.com. And let me reread segments of this. Knowing what you know, ask yourself this question. Why on earth would Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox website, pastors.com, have ever posted anything like this? Here it is again. Centering prayer, trust Jesus brings transformation. A healthy spiritual life is an important part of overall wellness. An active and healthy faith means that we are concerned with something larger than ourselves. It also means most often that we are part of a community of people with similar beliefs and priorities to ours, but we sometimes become bored with our normal spiritual routine. One way to add something different to our faith is to try a practice called centering prayer, Centering prayer is an ancient form of prayer that is a combination of prayer and meditation. The practice was revived in the 1960s and 70s by three Cistercian monks. The practice of centering prayer allows for the recognition of thoughts and gently releases them into the hands of God. This form of prayer relies on the awareness that the Holy Spirit resides in the one who prays. That's right. Yeah, because you're God. Connecting them heart to heart with God. So how do you begin this practice of centering prayer? Set aside a, f- a minimum of 15 minutes. Increase your time as you can and set a timer if that helps you to be less concerned about when to stop. Settle into a comfortable position. Intentionally place yourself in the presence of God in in the center of his love. Choose a simple word, phrase, or verse from scripture that expresses your desire for God. For example, a word such as love. Peace, grace, Jesus, great shepherd. Let this word guard your attention. Take time to be quiet. It is not unusual for the first minute to for the first few minutes to be filled with many noisy thoughts. Don't worry about them or pay attention to them. Let them go. Gently return your attention to the center of God's presence and love by repeating the scripture that you select. Let the verse draw your attention back to Jesus. Be with Jesus. Listen. Be still. Because centering prayer is a way of being with Jesus that doesn't cover prayer concerns, some people wonder if it counts as real prayer. No, it doesn't. Furthermore, if it doesn't make you feel or experience something particularly, what does it do? Well, yeah, see, that's these are great questions. It's never possible to judge the value of any prayer based on feeling or experience alone. Experiences are not the point. In centering prayer, the goal is to so dwell in Christ that the fruit of this dwelling begins to show up in your life. Centering prayer may do nothing at the moment. You sense no rapture, no mystical bliss. But later, as you move out into the business of life, you begin to notice that something has shifted. Your quiet center in Christ holds. Centering prayer trusts that being with Jesus brings transformation. So knowing what you now know from one of the men who helped 
really kind of revive this practice. And the reason why he revived it is so that people could discover that they are God. Why on earth would Rick Warren's ministry toolbox and pastors.com ever for a second publish an article like that? This isn't Christianity. This isn't Christian prayer. This is Eastern pantheistic monism and and meditation. That's what this is. Again, why is it that the folks associated with Saddleback Church would even for a second think that this is appropriate for any Christian to practice? So my challenge again to Rick Warren is this. It's not enough that you remove the words of this article off your website. You must publish a retraction and explain why this practice is contrary to Christianity. This isn't about spin control for Saddleback and Rick Warren. This is about the truth of the gospel and sound biblical doctrine and people being deceived by demons and going to hell. So, Rick Warren, we need to hear a retraction from you. We need to hear you with your own voice explain why this this practice is dangerous and contrary to Christianity. But truth be told, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet a single slug nickel that Rick Warren or anybody at Rick Warren's Ministry Toolbox will ever say anything negative about this practice. It just quietly disappeared because there was controversy. Maybe they'll bring it back in a couple of years. We'll see. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. It takes a lot of time to research and pull together the programs that we put together here at Fighting for the Faith. And without your help, we can't continue to do them. So if you don't already support us, visit our website and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and do so. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button on our website, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>